I always encourage leaders to have these collaborative uh, conversations when they're making decisions. And you can do it in such a way where, you know, the way I look at it is, yeah, I'm the leader. At the end of the day, I'm responsible for the results of whatever decision I make. And I need to make that decision. But how am I gonna make the best possible decision is by getting all kinds of perspectives including the devil's advocates, including the people who are gonna poke holes in my decision. Why? Because that's gonna help me make a better decision. I wanna know the weak spots in my plan. I want the devil's advocates to say, Luis, hold on a second. Have you thought about this? Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a master facilitator who has worked with executives and leaders of large companies such as Microsoft, Marriott Hotel, and Ritz-Carlton. Specializes in workplace performance and productivity, and knows the importance of multicultural competency and global team building. His education includes a certificate in English language teaching to adults from the University of Cambridge a BA in Magna Cum Laude, International Studies, and an MA, International Policy Studies, Culture, and Area Studies from the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Our guest today has extensive experience as a facilitator, communication specialist, academic director, and HR manager at companies such as Microsoft, Education First, UST Global, Marriott Hotel, KEM Intercultural Group and Ritz Carlton. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a professional people manager, two times winner of the prestigious Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award, and is passionate about music of all kinds, world travel, yoga, and surfing. Louis Gonzalez. Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. It's a real pleasure to be here. <laughs> You've had a, a real global experience to your life. So where did you first grow up and what was life like for you as a child? I grew up in a small town south of Los Angeles, California. Not many people have heard of it. Compton, California. From Compton, California, I grew up in a very uh, multicultural environment, shall we say, especially back then it was a lot more uh, diverse than it is now. So I grew up in Compton, California, Southern California, and that is for those that are not familiar with it. Very close, I would say, probably two hours driving. That's how we calculate in California. Two hours driving, uh, let's say maybe 200 kilometers from Los Angeles to the Mexican border. I'm a second generation U.S. born American citizen of my grandparents who were Mexican citizens. They walked here from Mexico. Many stories like theirs began to pick produce in the fields. This was back in the 19. 40s. My father was the first generation firstborn here in the United States. 
And so that's where I was raised. I was raised in a very multicultural environment. I was raised traveling to Mexico quite often in a bilingual household, speaking English and Spanish. Uh, so I, I was, I guess you could say, uh, this was embedded in me or I was brought up in that kind of a world. So it was nothing uh, new to me as I grew older to uh, understand what, it, what it's like to go from one culture to the next and code switch and language switch and all of that stuff. So does that answer the question? No, oh, beautifully. And so what really fueled your fire at that age, you know, as a, as a teenager, you know, what, when you got up in the morning, what was something that really inspired you to go and do that day? When I was a kid, what inspired me? Play, <laughs> uh, adventure, out and about, leave the house, explore. So, um, you know, back in those days, and I grew up in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, uh, they might have called us hyperactive. There was no term for ADD or any of that. I imagine maybe I might have had ADD. I don't know. But the doctor told my mom, just keep him busy. Luckily, they didn't give me any drugs or anything like that. So I was building tree houses. I was building go-karts. I was out climbing trees, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, as I got older, probably preteen into the teens, maybe 12, 13, that's when I started realizing I had this interest in what other people are doing. And that's when I started to explore, what do they do? What do they do? So to give you a little bit of context, I, uh, I went my entire school, first grade through 12th grade uh, at Catholic school. So I never set foot in a public, uh, public school uh, building before. I was at Catholic school. So naturally raised a Roman Catholic. And at age 13, age 13, you know, the Mormons are coming by knocking on the door. The Jehovah's Witnesses are coming by knocking on the door. I have uh, neighbors who are not Catholic. What do they do and why do they do it that way? And what's the reason they do that? And thus began my intercultural or other, other culture, others uh, exploration. Uh, so to answer your question, I was all about play pretty much up until I realized I had a big curiosity about what everyone else around the world is doing and why. Not just what they're doing, but why do they do that that way? Yeah. <laughs> why do they believe that and, and it's really important you know like it's so easy to get caught up in your own little bubble and you know this is the way the world lives this is the way people behave and then you go somewhere else or you you ask some questions and you start to learn more about other people you know for you who was probably your greatest influences you know through your formative years uh easy to answer that question my grandfather my father's father uh, he was the one that walked across the border with his five brothers and sisters and his mother. Uh, the American dream, if anyone knows what that means, any of your listeners know what that means. It's why immigrants come to the United States to live out this dream, which means middle class, buying a house, having a nice, comfortable life with your kids and all of that. He achieved that. And so he was a very big influence uh, in my life when I was a kid. I can remember even as early as probably five, six, seven, eight years old, him telling me how the world was, of course, according to him, and what I should do and what I needed to do. For example, we left Mexico and we never looked back. So in the 70s, there was a Chicano movement here in the United States where people of Mexican descent were now looking at their roots and uh, as well as other minority groups were, you know, there was you know, Black Pride and Native Americans were, uh, you know, checking out their past, reclaiming their pride and all of that. My grandfather was not having any of that. We left Mexico. If you want, if you're so proud of Mexico, you can go back and see what kind of life we led. 
He also influenced me with stuff that probably wasn't so good. Uh, you should marry a Mexican. Don't marry a white woman. She'll divorce you. She won't. Uh, she'll want to work. She won't want to raise the kids. You know, these are all his cultural mores that, that were embedded in him. Knowing that we were in the United States, he wanted me to stay in that lane, if you will. I should also name my first boy, Luis. I'm Luis. My dad's Luis. My grandfather is Luis. I should continue that tradition, etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, in, in Latin American culture, Mexican culture specifically, and it is changing now, of course, as a lot of things in, in the world are, uh, but traditionally, uh, there was a patriarch in the family. And that patriarch made the decisions and everyone followed what he said. And that was my grandfather. And so, for example, if me and my brothers and sisters were hanging out with our grandparents on the weekend and our cousins might be there and my grandfather decided it was 830 at night and it was time for everybody to go to bed, we could moan and we could complain and tell him we're not tired. It doesn't matter. It's time to go to bed. So that was the big influence in my life. My grandfather, uh, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And, and so, you know, some, you talked about being very curious as a, as a child and, and obviously still very curious now. That, you know, you've, your grandfather talking about leaving Mexico behind and, you know, we're now in America moving forward. Did that spark for you a real interest in going back to, to see where the family came from in Mexico? Or had, did you just move on like the rest of the family? Um, yes and no, and I'll, and I'll let me let me explain what I mean by that. It didn't give me an interest to go back with his lens. What it did was it gave me, uh, I would call it an interest and more of a desire not to lose the culture that he left. And that's just unique to me. My brothers, for example, some of my cousins had no such desire. They didn't even think about it. They were Americans and now, you know, here we are and they just assimilated. They didn't even assimilate. They were born here. But me, maybe because I was one of the first grandkids, I was the first grandkid actually. So I got a taste of the old culture and the old language, all of that, uh, before it started to fizzle out and I didn't want to lose that. And so I, my grandfather kind of helped me, helped pique that interest in me to uh, discover more about that Mexican culture before it disappears in our family anyway, and hold on to it and dive into it. Yeah. So you head off to college and university and you're studying a lot around international studies and also teaching, you know, where did that, that passion for, um, I want to learn more about international studies and, and teaching people. I'm going to back up because I'm a late bloomer. Uh, the timeline is a little off. I didn't go to grad school till, uh, gosh, almost 20 years after graduating from high school. Oh, wow. Yes. So I graduated from high school and within two years, three years, something like that, found myself at the Ritz-Carlton. And I worked my way up in the hotel industry at the Ritz-Carlton, which eventually was bought out by Marriott. I worked my way up. The Ritz-Carlton and Marriott both, I believe, still to this day, have a wonderful philosophy of investing in your people, training them and hiring and promoting them from within. And I am really fortunate to have uh, been allowed to take advantage of that. Uh, but it probably was late in that career. I would say the late 90s. I had been with the Ritz probably oh, a good 13, 14, 15 years, something like that. And you can imagine the Ritz-Carlton in the L.A. area, all the different people that would visit there, uh, you know, from all over the world. And I was always 
uh, I would play a game with myself, try to guess where are they from or what language is that? And then I would ask, by the way, my first trip to India during the slow months of January, February, and March in the hotel industry, where you're free to take a leave of absence unpaid without losing your job because they don't want you in the payroll. I went to India for the first time in my life at age 21 by myself, traveled around with a backpack. My parents were like, what the heck are you doing? Can't you just start with France or something? You got to go all the way to India. So I had always had this interest. The Ritz-Carlton comes and I'm exposed to all these different cultures. And I can tell you the moment it clicked for me when I said to myself, that's it. I got to go study this stuff was when, and you'll relate to this, having been to India, we had a wedding party come in on a Saturday, what appeared to be this big, beautiful Indian wedding. All the people coming in were dressed to the hilt and they were getting for this big Indian wedding. I had already been exposed to India and Indians. And as I believe it probably was the bride herself and the party she was with came in the door and I looked at them. I was working in the front area at the time. I think it was a, I was a guest uh, assistant guest services manager. And I looked at them and said, namaste only to find out they were Pakistani. <laughs> that didn't go over very well. Right. And I felt horrible. And I thought to myself, okay, I gotta, how, what, why? And that's what prompted me uh, to decide to go to grad school. I had an interest in international studies, obviously. I went in under the uh, thinking I was going to say the illusion or the illusion or the thinking that I was going to be a diplomat and I was going to help bring, pre bring peace to the planet uh, as a diplomat. And it, uh, one thing led to another. And my mentor, who was a professor of mine, became my mentor, was into this cross-cultural communication, cross-cultural training. He owned a company. And that was how I made my left turn into actually doing cross-cultural consulting. So, uh, so started with the Ritz-Carlton. Interest got peaked, and it wasn't until age 36, 37, I decided to go back to school. Love and it. completed that, got my master's degree, yeah. So, go, so talking about the Marriott and Ritz-Carlton there, you know, they're both known for, you know, high quality training and processes yes. around looking after people and how do we bring them up. So if you look after our people first, that looks after our guests, et cetera, and the customer service that comes, comes through that. For yes. you, what were your biggest learnings from your early days working in big, large international companies? What resonated with me, first of all, and I'm speaking from my experience at the Ritz, okay? Young, fresh kid, fresh off the beach at age 23. Number one, the accountability they gave us, the ownership they gave us, uh, and some of the glitter that came with it that made us feel special, but I think is important. In other words, they would use verbiage uh, such as, you know, you were hand selected out of hundreds of applicants. You were hand selected to be part of this awesome, unique team. And we treat our guests, we treat our, we call each other, one another, we call it one another internal guests. And we treat one another behind, in the back of the house, the same way we do as our guests in the front of the house. And so I learned what accountability was. I learned what ownership was. I learned uh, what it's like to work in an environment where you there's no difference in the way that you treat anybody in that environment, whether they be uh, the king of the prince of Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, one of them, you know, many of them used to come to the Ritz, 
or somebody who's from some car dealership in the Midwest and won this weekend at the Ritz in Los Angeles, never left his state before. Everyone's a VIP. Everyone gets treated the same. Everyone gets treated at the top level of customer service, including one another, including ourselves. We And so that was so impressive to me. I thought I had, I thought I had died and gone to heaven for, for sure. The moment that they told us, if we have a guest opportunity, and that means you know a guest complaining, a guest isn't happy, we use the positive word opportunity. It's an opportunity to turn around a guest. If we have a guest opportunity, you don't call the manager, one moment, let me get the manager for you. No, you handle it on the spot and you've got 2000 imaginary dollars in your pocket to make that guest happy and turn him or her around. To tell that to a 22, 23 year old kid and give that ownership and that accountability and that pride and the and it was genuine. That was the key as well. You know that they weren't just, you know, I, I saw people rise through the ranks within a year or two. So that's what impressed me. And I just got to say, even to this day, I ask myself, why doesn't every company do this? I still don't understand 20 years later uh, why people don't get what an what a worthwhile investment it is to invest in your people like that. So yeah, that's the first thing I learned. And, and so when did that kind of shift from working, you know, inside the organization to actually training the people inside the organization? So uh, it's an interesting question. Um, it was brought to me, I think, well, here's what I think happened. One of the, one of my colleagues who worked in HR saw something in me, probably that I didn't see in myself at the time. And she gave me an opportunity to join what they call total quality management leader. There was, you're familiar with total quality yep. management, right? So she wanted, she asked, would I be interested in getting involved in this and what was in it for me? And I said, yeah, sure. I had just become a bellman. I had, I had worked my way up from busboy to banquets waiter, to massage therapist, to valet car parker, to now I was a bellman. And now they're giving me an opportunity to train. Well, I, that just comes natural to me. I think I've always been kind of a teacher or a trainer or wanting to, I think it comes from wanting to help people. So I got a taste of that. And then I realized, wow, it became almost competitive. And what I mean by that is you, you mentioned the Malcolm Baldridge Award that, by the way, I didn't win personally. We, as that hotel property, won together. We used to have competitions with one another to see how, who could impress the guest most? Who could, what we would call in California lingo, buff out that guest the most? You know what I mean? We actually have competitions with that. And there was some joy in that. We didn't get a lot of monetary compensation. We got something, but just what got me was the, 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 the responsibility and the ownership to be a part of something awesome, to wow people. And to actually, once I had already been by that time with the Ritz for 10 years, I knew what Ritz Carlton quality was. And now they're asking me to make, to assure quality is maintained in my department from training newcomers and then up to maintaining it. I could walk around and tell people, hey, hand out of your pockets, dude, come on, stand at attention or you know, comb your hair or whatever it is. Um, it was an awesome opportunity. It was an awesome experience. And that's what I think accelerated uh, my interest in my career uh, to what I'm doing now. And so what do you feel is your strength as a facilitator? 
My main strength as a facilitator is connecting with people. I have the ability, it must be innate because I don't think it's anything I've, I've ever practiced or studied, but I have that something where I can go into a room of X amount of people or I can hop on a call like this with X amount of people and within a quick amount, of, short amount of time, establish a connection. If that makes any sense, you mean you might want to ask me, you know, what I mean by connection, but I think I think you know what I mean by that. And then that builds a little bit of trust. That builds a little bit of rapport, and then we move on. After that, I would say it's my energy. I'm definitely not boring, so people. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about trust there. So how do you know when there is a high enough level of trust between uh, leaders? and diverse teams in an organization? How do I know when there's a high level of trust between the leaders and let's say their teams within mm -hmm. the organization? Yeah. Uh, as an outsider, you mean observing it? I would say when the leaders are worried, constantly worrying about, are they accountable? Are they doing what I've asked them to do? I wonder if it's gonna get there on time like I've asked them to do, or they're micromanaging. Uh, that tells me there's a very low level of trust. They haven't established that trust. They haven't uh, established that rapport. First of all, they haven't enriched their relationship to be able to do that, either intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe they don't. They aren't even aware of it. So that would be that would be the first thing that comes to my mind. And so, as a leader, how how can you kind of sense when that trust is there uh, to be able to? Um, given the opportunity for the employees to stand on their own selves. You know, you talked about having that level of accountability and ownership of it. Is that something that a leader can do straight away or is it something they need to build trust with, with the employee first before they allow that? Well, to me, they go hand in hand. So we talk about building trust. Well, what, how do you start for me? How do you start building trust is engaging in a conversation, first of all, like we're doing right now and getting curious. It's not about me if I come to the conversation, but it's about you, me learning about you, asking questions. And then that starts to just build a, a very base level of trust. You're just building rapport. What, do you, what are you excited about in this role? Uh, what's keeping you up at night in this role? What kind of support can I give you? Uh, you know, those kinds of questions. And then asking more questions after that. What else? Tell me more about that. How else do you see that? And then offering words of support. I'm here to support you. Can't wait to see what we do. Starts there. Then it continues. It's all about, to me, it's all about conversations. Sometimes the conversations are difficult. Sometimes they're challenging. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're easy, but it's about communication. So for example, I might, uh, to use an American uh, analogy, let your leash out a little bit. Maybe I'll let you fall and make a mistake and learn from it. But then that is followed up by another conversation. What could you have done better? Where did you realize that maybe it was going in the wrong direction? Uh, what are you going to do differently next time? What kind of support do you need from me? Again, there's a conversation. It's a feedback conversation, perhaps. Here's what I think maybe perhaps you could have done it a little bit differently. In my experience, here's what I've seen work. And then let them go again. You give them that trust to be able to do it. And then celebrate those small successes and incrementally give them more, uh, you know, more rain, more freedom. And as they have those little successes, then they build their own self-confidence. Your trust is built with them. They trust you. You have a stronger relationship. The returns are great. 
It's incremental, doesn't work at the same speed with everybody, everyone's different. But to me, that's where it starts. It starts with communication, conversations. So quite often we see people avoiding conversations. You know, what is the psychology behind why this occurs? It's fear-based, basically. You've probably heard this before, but fear of, am I gonna be wrong? Am I gonna rock the boat? Am I gonna ruin the relationship? Uh, Am I gonna look stupid? Um, what's their reaction going to be? I have to work with them all the time and we've got this project that's due and it's stressful, but if I bring up this issue, oh, then what's going to happen then? It's fear, fear of the unknown. But the way I look at it is, what kind of result are you expecting? And I'll, I'll talk to myself, what kind of result can I expect if I don't say anything, if I don't approach the topic, if I don't bring up the subject at all, my experience has seen, and from my experience, I've seen things get worse and they fester. Generally speaking, things don't improve. Things don't get any better. Let it be, it'll get better on its own. In my experience, that rarely happens. What do I stand to gain if I have, if I initiate the conversation and it goes well? So much to gain. There's a 50-50 chance that things are gonna go well, but I have to have, I have to start the conversation uh, for there to be that 50-50 chance. If I withhold what, I, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I think I wanna say or I feel I need to say and I withhold that, there's relatively little chance to no chance of anything being resolved. And then worse, it festers. And then it explode. It can't explode. We've seen that probably happen. Hmm. So, so fear-based. Yeah, fear-based. And like when we have conversations, you know, quite often people will come to a conversation, have no intention of what the outcome is going to be. So what what advice can you provide people to ensure that their conversations are worthwhile? First thing is, as much as possible, be authentic, first of all, because I think on a deep level, human beings, we sense when people are not keeping it real with us. And then before, and I'll talk to myself, this is my own you know, giving myself my own advice here as you ask the question, you know, first start by asking myself, interrogating my own reality. What is it I want to achieve in this conversation? First of all, is it about me being able to say, see, I told you so. Is it about my ego? Is it about me being right? Is it about me looking good? Or is this about wanting to know more about a situation, get more information about a situation? Um, understand how a person made a decision, how they got to that conclusion, any of that, you know, where, what's my motive? What's my motivation? If it's about my ego, if it's about me looking good, uh, you know, getting a pat on the back or what have you, I may pause (laughs) because it's, it's selfish. Does that make sense? Hmm. Uh, but if it's not any of those, okay, now I've checked my own, um, as we say at fierce interrogated my own reality and then, entering the conversation with the other person who I want to have the conversation with, I start by getting curious with them, starting with how are are you doing? How are you feeling today? Or whatever it is. And then asking more questions before I come in with how I see things, before I come in with my perspective or my point of view or whatever it is I want to discuss, how are you seeing it? Tell me how you got to that conclusion. Tell me more about that. Wow. I see how you got there. Okay. That makes sense to me. So you're again, building rapport, I may disagree with the outcome, but I see how they arrived at that outcome, if that makes sense. And so I begin by getting curious, interrogating reality, as we call it, 
asking questions. Once we do that, once I've asked, let's say it's you and I, once I've asked you questions and I've continued to go a little bit deeper to really get the bigger picture, hopefully you will have engaged, it doesn't always happen, but you will have asked me some questions and then you will have asked me, how do you see it, Luis? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? And I'll share. Now, at that point, we've both learned something. Uh, it, it, we've gotten a, both, we both have a bigger picture of whatever it is that we're wanting to discuss or whatever challenge we need to address, we're better equipped to do so, having gotten curious with one another first. So that's been my rule of thumb for quite some time. And I still remind myself of that too. If I'm about to start a conversation with someone, even on the fly in the moment, I'll stop and ask myself, what's your point? Because I'll admit, uh, sometimes when I was younger, it was worse. I like to be the wise guy or be the funny guy or, you know what I mean? And now I'm more mature and that might've worked when I was 25. But, you know, now I think to myself, what I say, how is it landing for other people? How are they feeling with what I'm saying? And what's my point? What's my, uh, what's the goal I want to get out of saying that anyway? So I, I'm eager to pause now before I jump right into it. But I hope that answers the question. Oh, very good. Sitting, sitting the intention is so important. We go back to where we talked about the people avoiding conversations. And, you know, so what, what are some simple and effective ways for people to overcome that fear of a hard conversation? Um, it sounds so simple, but here's the way I look at it. And I work with myself this way, and I've offered this in classes that I've facilitated. Where, for example, I've uh, facilitated confrontation conversations. You could call it uh, conflict resolution, let's say. Um, and it's really hard. We know that it's really difficult to even initiate those kinds of conversations. And so in the classroom, people will say like, gosh, you know, looks good on paper, looks good on the PowerPoint. Uh, we practice it and it was fun, but I don't know if I'm ready to do this. And then I just say, look, it's as simple as this. You decide, but I want you to look at this. What are the risks? What are the costs? What are the downsides, whatever word you want to look at? I like risks and costs. What are the risks? What are the costs if you avoid the conversation and you don't have it? What's that look like in six months? What's that? If I'm having dinner with you six months from now, what are you going to be telling me? And what is there to gain? What are the benefits if you have the conversation, you start the conversation, and it actually goes well because there's a 50% chance it will. What do you gain from that? And then in their own minds, they weigh it out. And sometimes people will decide, you know what? The gains aren't as, they aren't as worth it. I'll, I'll stick with the risks. They're not that great. Fine, that's your decision then. Hmm. You know what I mean? But that's how I look at it. And usually I lean to, usually in my mind, it's always towards, there's so much more to gain if I have this conversation and it goes well. And even if it doesn't, I've come out of my comfort zone. <laughs> <laughs> I've done something to challenge myself, right? So, yeah. And looking at conversations and connectivity with people, many people see other people's situations or circumstances as the problem. How can people who find themselves in the blame game break out from the victim mindset? Focus on the issue, not the person. Assume good intentions. You can quote me on that. <laughs> Just assume good intentions. Get the pressure off the person. Off the person. It's the issue that we need to talk about. I need to speak with you about the effect your your uh, your late 
deliveries are having on the rest of this project. So it's your late deliveries of whatever it is you were responsible to deliver. Uh, that's the issue, not you. I want to talk about those late deliveries. Can we talk about that? Because you, I'd like to share with you the effect it's having on the larger team. So try to get the pressure and the focus off the person and it's on the issue you're discussing. And then you resolve an issue and you carry on. Mm, very good. Very good. I like that. Separating the issue from the person. Now, if we find ourselves in a situation where the company culture is becoming or has become toxic, how can leaders break and reset the culture? Wow, that's a great question. I've worked in some toxic environments as well, teams, I should say, uh, and it's happened. I think number one, addressing it, showing vulnerability, recognizing it. I think if a leader and what I've seen, if a leader models vulnerability, followed up by accountability, it's setting a good example for everyone else and it's showing the good intention. So number one, by acknowledging it and then setting the tone, actually demonstrating and having the top, I guess you could say leaders that might report to that person also on board with, we have to set the culture and then constantly encouraging the team, engaging in conversations with the team. Uh, that would be a start. I, why I say it would be a start is because I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, my experience back at the Ritz for so many days. You can do that. And let's say 90% of the team is on board. And with a certain period of time, the culture is starting to shift, but there will sometimes be those that don't go with the flow, if you will. And that requires more different conversations, side conversations with them. Uh, we took, you know, with leadership and, and, you know, we're getting, been able to reset cultures and reset cultures and things like that. Yeah. When is it important? Do you th when, when do you think it's important for leaders to have a collaborative leadership style versus an authoritative type leadership style? I would lean more towards collaborative, but there's always a point where the leader just has to make the decision. In fact, generally the leaders make the decisions, but to invite the different perspectives, it builds trust, it enriches relationships, people feel part of the bigger uh, purpose of the organization. So I always encourage leaders to have these collaborative uh, conversations when they're making decisions. And you can do it in such a way where, you know, the way I look at it is, yeah, I'm the leader. At the end of the day, I'm responsible for the results of whatever decision I make, and I need to make that decision. But how am I going to make the best possible decision is by getting all kinds of perspectives, including the devil's advocates, including the people who are going to poke holes in my decision. Why? Because that's going to help me make a better decision. I want to know the weak spots in my plan. I want the devil's advocates to say, Luis, hold on a second. <laughs> Have you thought about this? Right? So that's a start. The second part of that is when you have these collaborative discussions uh, in an effort to make the best possible decision as a leader, sometimes you just have to go with some of those suggestions that came your way when they're not crucial or as I would say, when they're the low hanging fruit 
perhaps a different way you can do a process that doesn't cost money or there's no risk with the uh, you know, revenue involved or what have you, and then take someone's advice and say, hey, great idea, put it into place and then let them have the glory. That's, uh, that's important. Again, building trust. So there are times when leaders just need to make decisions and you can't have collaborative discussions around it. I get that. But when that's not the case, you know, invite different perspectives before you make the decision. Find out what those weak spots are. Find out different perspectives. So say, for example, a leader uh, is about to you know, make a, a decision that is eventually going to roll down and affect those who are client facing, customer facing. But that leader is not asked what that decisions that he's about or she is about to make is going to look like when it gets to them. Wouldn't it be wise to ask them, hey, I'm about to make this big change. What does that look like when it gets to you? And how is that going to affect our customer? because they might come back. I've seen this happen. They come back and say, no, don't do that. Here's why. And then the leader goes, oh my gosh, thank you. When the leader doesn't do that, they think they have a wonderful idea and maybe it's not egotistical. Maybe they really do honestly feel, wow, this is the, this is the key right here. I've got it. And they roll it out and they don't invite different perspectives on that decision only to have to step back three months into it and do all the rework and all that. We know that there's a cost to that. So yeah, those are my thoughts on that collaborative for sure. I find a lot of leaders who go and spend some time in the front line, you know, being uh, customer, you know, front facing customers and just spending that time with those staff when they are making these decisions are really successful. They get to yes, feel it. Yeah. They feel yeah. the customer, and they feel what that staff is doing on the front line. Uh, and look, you know, what you're, what you're telling me right now is, again, something I wish all companies would do. The Ritz-Carlton, at least in my day back then, did that. Sometimes you could, you could be a manager in a suit and a general manager or someone above you may come and tell you, I need dishwashers now. <laughs> I need people to park cars now. We've got a wedding coming in with 500 people in line, everybody, all hands on deck. And you're in your suit, you're washing dishes, you're parking cars, you're doing everything. And then you really get to experience what, it's an eye opener. You get to see and develop some empathy for what other roles do, what other people do in those roles. Absolutely. You talked about going to India when you were in your early 20s. And I love some of the the this word or this this phrase you have called intercultural competency tell me a little bit more about what that is and how that can benefit a company so to me intercultural competency means something it may not correlate exactly with the dictionary uh, definition intercultural competency is everything from language to understanding the nuances in language. So I'll start there. For example, in India, you might be speaking with people who are native English speakers. They're, they're Anglo-Indians. They exist in India, but the nuances in the English that they're speaking with me are a little bit different. I have to read between the lines sometimes to understand the real import or really what's being said there. That's intercultural competency something blatant and obvious like the example I gave you at the Ritz-Carlton where what appeared to me were a certain group of people, I greeted them in another way and they were not part of that group. 
there we are again with getting curious. I could have asked them first, welcome, where are you coming in from? They would have told me Pakistan and I would have greeted them differently. That would have made me more interculturally competent. I eventually did, but I took a, I, I took the long, hard route to, to get there. Intercultural competence to me is also having lived in India and worked there, uh, as well as in Brazil and India, I'm sorry, Brazil and Mexico, which are not really so far from my own native culture, if you will. Uh, but intercultural competency is also in the moment when I'm in India, for example, and I'm having dinner with a bunch of people, observing what they do, how they do it, how they're discussing, and then following suit. So now I can say, no one's officially told me this, but I know this in myself, having been to India so many times and lived there, I'm culturally, pretty culturally competent. I can immediately switch my brain when I get there to now where I don't even have to think about how I'm communicating, what's being said to me, uh, to you know how I'm supposed to eat, what are the protocols, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and even a, you can take it from the, from the high level, the, the more obvious level, like I said, to the, the obvious kind of stuff, handshakes and greetings and all that, all the way to the very, very subtle level of how a culture thinks and processes uh, different uh, bits of information in life, if that makes sense, right? So it gets finer and finer from my experience. Hmm. Yeah, I hope I, that's helpful. No, it is. And I think that's really important. And it's been able to, uh, the power of observation is something that if you can master that as a, as a communicator, you have such an advantage on other people. And a lot of people yeah. will just, they might listen, they might read, but they don't observe the behaviors and the subtle nuances of what's going on in a conversation the people they're dealing with. So, so powerful. And it kind of reminds me back to something when I was working in Thailand and we had the Dutch Olympic swimming team coming. And one thing that was really important that we spoke to our staff about was that you always inform them if you're going to be late. Not, it's not so much a courtesy thing, it's because they'll always be worrying that something's happened to you. Yes. yes. So it's understanding yes. the differences of, of what, how they perceive yes. something. Yes. Can I give an example of that? Uh, you know, come from the United States, U.S. born and raised. We're very independent. That's a big context. It's an overriding context here in the United States, our independence. Uh, after you leave, you leave the house at 18 and you're on your own. One of my first trips to India, I was with a, some good friends of mine who now I would call my Indian family. I've known them now for over 20 years. The first time I went to India, uh, sorry, not the first time, first time I went to India with them as part of you know visiting them and all of that, I stepped away from their house for about a week to go to South India and do something else, change of itinerary, let's call it, right? And I didn't check in with them every day. Now for an American young guy in his 30s, I don't check in with my mom or anybody every day and at first i thought to myself why what what is this what are they keeping tabs on me and then as you pointed out i realized they cared for me dearly and felt responsible for me i was under their care and when i didn't call after having taken a train as an american in india to you know 500 kilometers away uh, that is intercultural competency i learned that lesson and now i know that out of courtesy i call hey i'm good i'm here had your dinner? Yes, I had dinner. I've eaten. Great. Okay. 
So that's also part of it. Understanding, that's what I meant by understanding how different cultures think. And then again, peeling the layer away, as you know, and for our listeners who may not know, India is a multicultural country. There's not just one thing there. You can peel the onion back from village to village and, and it changes, the, the nuances change. That's intercultural competency as, as well for me, knowing what needs to change as I go from North India to South India. Subtle stuff, even in terms of communication. Yeah. I'm just gonna take a, a step back here a little bit. And you, you, sure. you worked a lot in the hospitality industry and, and obviously by the end you were training, uh, facilitating people in that space as well. When you went across to Microsoft and, and you start being a communication specialist and trainer there around culture, what was the big gap between the hospitality industry versus the corporate um, industry? And what can companies learn from this? That's interesting. I've never thought of there being a gap, but I will say this, I've never, gosh, never is a big word, isn't it? Uh, I don't believe I have ever stepped foot in a culture like what we had at the Ritz-Carlton and what they, I believe, still currently have to this day. So let me just say this. Culturally speaking, Microsoft, great company. They run a tight ship. But what was missing, now that you mention it, as I think about the gap, and again, I have not thought about this before, but it's coming to mind now, just that internal guest service as the example i gave you early we are internal guests serving one another from the dishwasher to the busboy to the waiter to whoever it is we are all internal guests and the way we treat one another internally and talk with one another internally is no different than when we are with our paying guests that was not present at the microsoft at, at microsoft if that makes sense so the way we treated one another, I won't say it was bad, but that, uh, that genteelness, for lack of a better word, uh, that whole gentleman, ladies and gentlemen kind of mentality, uh, you know, wasn't there at Microsoft. It was a little more rough around the edges, if you will. Uh, what is interesting, if you don't mind me just kind of segueing off into this, maybe this is something you might want to take a, a dive into a little bit later, uh, Interesting how I saw overlaps or overlaying of culture. So what I mean by that is within Microsoft, within the office at Microsoft, it was a Microsoft culture. It was unique Microsoft corporate culture uh, with some Indian flavor, if you will. The moment we would leave the office and we could be outside in the campus itself or in the taxi cabs driving home, it's Indian culture 100%, but as soon as we come into the Microsoft campus, there's something that switches and you have the Microsoft corporate mindset. And this is the way we talk and this is the way uh, we do it. Like I said, with an Indian flavor, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So you're dealing with people a lot in the work that you do. So how do you recharge, uh, re-energize every day? Um, and make sure that when you get up in the morning that you set the intention of the energy you're going to bring. I put work into that. It didn't come easy. Persistence and regularity and habit were the key for me. So to answer your question, number one, early to bed. Number two, early to rise. I'm in bed by 9, by 9 p.m. Uh, I'm up. My alarm goes off at 4 a.m. So I get a good seven. I'm good on seven, seven and a half hours. Get up shower, 
yoga, meditation, stretch. By then I'm good to go. I have energy. I've done breath exercises. I have breathed and I go to work now that I'm working from home and will be for the foreseeable future. About 11.30 or so, a good four hours of solid work, I leave the desk, I get up, I go outside, get out. I don't even bring my cell phone with me. Go outside, fresh air. I live in California, it's probably gonna be sunny. Half an hour walk, fresh air, come back in, have some lunch, get back to work, make some tea. Repeat, five o'clock, drop it, close it, stop. Go outside for a bike ride, go for a swim, go surf, go to the beach. Maybe come back in the evening, answer some emails, and then done. By 7 o'clock, I promise myself, no work will be done after 7 p.m. unless it's one of those extreme situations. Done. Shut the laptop. But I feel good because I've managed my time and I've had me time. I've had that balance. I've gotten in me time. I've played. I still like to play. I still like to surf. I still like to get in the water. If I can get a half an hour to an hour of that a day, I'm good. And my sleep. Uh... Very good, very good. I think it's, you know, humans are designed for boundaries. And when the boundaries are loose, then we can tend to end up in the space where we don't look after ourselves. And it's a, it's yeah. a long-term effect. Uh, hey, so. Can I share something with you on that, on the boundaries and looking after ourselves? Here's what was key for me. About 10 years ago, a different organization I was working for, I'd be working my butt off until, you know, five o'clock, everyone would go home and I'd be like at 5.10, 5.15, still plugging away. I'd see people leaving out of the office even early and saying things like, I got to pick up my kids. I got to take my kid to football practice. I got to take my kid to dance or whatever their kids had to do. They were now shutting off work and now they had to pay attention to their kids. And that's when I realized I have a kid that needs daily attention too. His name is Luis. It's me. And this kid needs playtime, exercise, all that fun time, all of that. And so now I look at it like, hey, they've got kids. I got one too. So five o'clock, done. Shut the laptop. My kid needs to go for a walk. That's how I look at it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, so we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time the last time i did something for the first time the last time i did something for the first time wow i know i've got a recent one because i remember telling myself i'm working right now on stretching myself getting myself outside of my cut my my comfort zone the first time I did something that I have never done before that stretched my comfort zone was, it was a while ago, I'll admit it was last summer. I have a fear of heights and there's a place in Laguna Beach near my home where we cliff dive. And I've always, I've climbed up there and looked down and chickened out and gone back down on, on foot, not jumped off. And this one time I finally, just with all the butterflies in my stomach, and my friends down in the water beneath going, just do it, just do it, just do it. I bit the bullet, as we say, and I jumped in. And guess what? I lived. <laughs> and I went up and I did it again. And it gave me such a good feeling. That's funny that you asked me that question. I hadn't even thought about that in a while. It was so impactful. <laughs> That's what I did, yeah. Overcoming that fear of heights. Yeah, yeah. The fear of the unknown. 
what is yeah. what is the one question that you would love to solve gosh the one question i would love to solve is what can we as a human race do to have more empathy and understanding with one another i know that sounds so esoteric it sounds so cliche but it's true i've been thinking about that one since i was a kid Beautiful. what can we do to be more understanding and have more empathy i think that'll get us a long way for you what is your definition of living an extraordinary life for me living an extraordinary life i'm currently doing it so for me this is my definition people may disagree with this my definition of living an extraordinary life is not doing what i've been told that i should do doing what my passion is following my passion following my heart um knowing inside what it is i want to do and not having the fear to do it and being an iconoclast if you know what that means right just smashing the way things were previously done just because they were done that way if you tell me you need to do it this way because we've done it this way always i will immediately turn the other way and so for me that's what that that's what that means and that's what i have been doing up to this point i've lived quite a contrary life from the uh I don't want to say the average because that sounds weird, but uh, <laughs> tip, typical uh, typical American person my age, American guy my age, yes. So extraordinary life is what I'm doing and just not following the trends or doing what you should. Following your heart, following your passion because that's when you're happy, speaking for myself. Luis, you've provided lots of great insights today. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? I would love for your listeners to visit our website to learn more about what I do. And I would love for your listeners to connect with me. Let's connect, let's network on LinkedIn. So if you'll allow me, would it be okay to give the website to uh, uh, our company, Fierce? It's Fierce Conversations is the name of the book. Our website is fierceinc.com. I'll spell it F like Frank, I-E-R-C-E inc.com that just dive in there's so much there there's resources there all about conversations what we call fierce conversations right uh, my name is luis gonzalez is how you pronounce it in spanish you can find me luis gonzalez at linkedin and i believe it's in.linkedin.com forward slash luis gonzalez g-o-n-z a-L-E-S. Got to be sure there's an S on the end of my Gonzalez last name. Please connect with me. Let's let's network. Let's let's see how we can support one another. Uh, we'll stick those in the show notes. Anyone can find them easily. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your journey uh, into the world through you know the leadership of your grandfather who guided you. Uh, and and gave, gave you some strong boundaries when you were young. Your curiosity and to see where that has led you throughout your career and been able to go and live overseas in different countries and understand the intercultural competency uh, of each situation you're in. Your ability to connect with people, it's, you can really feel it when you're having a conversation with you. You are right there in the moment, present with the person you're speaking with 
and I can feel your real passion for ensuring that people communicate effectively, that they are thinking about what is the intention of our interaction, what is the energy that I want to set when I meet people and greet people. It's so, so important in life. So I really thank you for the work that you do and yeah, for everyone out there, please make sure you check out Fierce Communications and the work that they're doing there. I know you've got the podcast and you've got lots of great articles and information. So delve on in, check out the, what the team are doing there. Luis, thank you so much once again for your time and for your great insights. Craig, thank you. It really, really was a pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to our fascinating conversation with Luis Gonzalez. Develop your intercultural competency on the Active CEO podcast. Energy is the number one currency in leadership. How will you schedule it, inspire it, and focus it? In Breaking the CEO Code, we have the three P's of the leadership performance formula. CEO periodization is number one. And that's all around how you schedule your energy. So how you have periods of work and periods of rest. So it's really important. So you go a three to one work to rest ratio. So three parts work and in using energy. And then you've got one part recovering and re renewing that energy. The second part is CEO performance. And CEO performance is all around how you inspire energy. Inspire energy is around setting performance habits and removing negative habits. It's around habits where you reduce contamination in from your workspace to your home space and vice versa. Or it is ensuring that you are embedding certain things into your daily routines and cues and triggers that ensure that you inspire positive energy. And then the third one is CEO presence, which is where you focus your energy. So it's setting the intentional energy for yourself for the day. How, what energy are you going to bring? How are you going to show up? Then it's setting the energy of the room. So how are you going to coordinate and conduct the energy in the room so that it achieves the desired outcomes? And thirdly, how do you um, focus your energy for the people that you are leading and interacting with? What type of energy do you want them to, to come alive with? If you'd like to find out more about breaking the CEO code and how you can harness your energy as your number one currency in leadership, then please contact me at Craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au. Thank you very much for listening today. Really grateful that you're here and absorbing this amazing content and learning the lessons from leaders around the world as I dissect them in the Active CEO podcast. I'm Craig Johns, and this is the Active CEO podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. 
leave a review on iTunes, drop us a line with your feedback and questions, and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.